Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today is Jason Hollands, Managing Director at Tilney Best Invest and Personal Finance Writer Kate Bealey. In this week's Portfolio Clinic, we feature a retired reader who has a substantial portfolio of investment trusts and funds focused on equity markets, but who wonders if he should maybe have a bit more in cash. He admits his approach is high risk, but argues that this has paid off in terms of returns, and in any case, he and his wife have good pensions. They're both retired public sector workers, as well as an attractive income stream from a buy-to-let property. Jason, traditionally, when investors reach retirement, their portfolios are less aggressive to consolidate the gains they've made over the years. So in what circumstances can retired investors consider running an aggressive portfolio? And do you think it is justified in this particular case as the reader and his wife have pensions and income on top of it? Hi. Well, obviously, uh, many people invest because they want to use their investments to fund their retirement. So they'll want to de-risk as they move into retirement, perhaps move out of sort of high growth investments into those that are generating more regular income. It seems in the case of this reader, clearly they have pensions from their employment. They have a source of income because they have a rental property. And therefore, they don't necessarily need to draw a yield off this investment portfolio and therefore are happy to keep um, running with a fairly aggressive approach. Um, just to see the, the value of the capital clock up. Yeah. Um, what would be examples of circumstances where retired investors should avoid having a more aggressive portfolio? Well, I think, for example, if uh, they know that they will need to uh, use that capital for a particular purpose within a within a short space of time, within maybe five to ten years, uh, clearly, you know, if you have a 100% equity um, portfolio that's maybe quite exposed to more racy areas of the market, you don't want to find that there's a big market sell-off or we're going to a bear market and the value of the capital suddenly whittles away below a level that's needed perhaps to pay off a mortgage, for example. Mm-hmm. So that might be, be one such example of where they actually need to take risk off the table. I think one of the bigger risks is actually that um, traditional uh, logic was that the closer you got to retirement, the more you de-risked ahead of retirement because you would then use that sum of money to purchase an annuity. But obviously a lot of people are uh, not doing that these days. They continue to be invested. And actually there's a bigger risk that many people take too much out of equities too soon and therefore the portfolio won't keep growing ahead of inflation um, to see them through their retirement. So there are risks both ways. Okay. Now, on that subject of um, equity allocation, this portfolio through funds is entirely equity-focused. Um, it sounds unbalanced, but the reader, as we mentioned before, has residential property and cash on top of it. If you've got, let's say, other non-equity asset port, um, assets outside the portfolio, do you think that makes having a pure equity portfolio suitable? I think it's, it's always important to take account someone's whole circumstances. And if we were advising this client and knew a lot more about their circumstances, we'd have a much better picture. Now, obviously, they have cash, but that may be to fund, you know, day-to-day needs or um, be a sort of rainy day pot of money. And clearly, they have a source of income from the rental property. But even then, I think with an investment portfolio, a long-term portfolio, um, even a fairly aggressive approach, my view is probably you shouldn't be more than 85% in equities. Yes, the reader isn't keen on bonds, and um, I have some sympathy with that in the mm-hmm. current environment. But actually, they might think about areas like absolute return funds or commercial property, which has very different dynamics to their residential property, just to try and um, 
reduce some of the potential volatility. Yes, they've made great returns out of equities, but we do have to remember we've been through a number of years where the equity market has really artificially been boosted by very accommodative central bank policies. And so the kind of returns this investor has seen in the past may not continue um, forever. And therefore, having some other investments that kind of add a little bit more common sense into the portfolio, a little bit more balance could make sense. Yeah, we've actually got some suggestions on absolute return funds and our fund tips for 2016 um, in this uh, week's magazine. Now, you mentioned the bonds um, because the reader doesn't like them. Is there an argument for having an allocation to bond funds, perhaps a small one in, you know, any kind of portfolios? I don't know about aggressive portfolios, perhaps low risk portfolio, you know, small percentage of bonds or are they just in a no-go area? No, I don't think they're no-go area. Um, uh, you know, even in our aggressive portfolios, we would probably have a 5 to 7% allocation to bonds. Um, uh, so it do- does make sense to have some exposure there. And um, I think th- the other thing to bear in mind is bond yields have already started to rise. So there are areas where we feel reasonably comfortable with the bond market. But there are areas at the moment we think are quite risky. So the high yield market we're quite uh, nervous about at the moment. Okay. And what kind of bond funds would you um, you know, suggest to your clients to express that um, 7% I think someone, allocation? I think for some, someone looking for a sort of one-stop shop, probably a strategic bond fund, which has where the manager has the flexibility to invest right across the spectrum of government bonds, corporate bonds, high-yield bonds, uh, if they feel that's attractive, and can also take quite aggressive moves on duration um, within the portfolios. There are a number of very good funds out there. One that I like is the uh, 24 Dynamic Bond Fund. Okay, yeah, and we've got some more suggestions actually on um, strategic bond funds in our IC Top 100 funds list. Now, another question the reader had was, should I be holding more cash? Um, what do you, I mean, there's obviously, you know, what do you think is the situation in this case? And just generally, what do you think about holding cash at the moment? I'd I'd say strategically, uh, uh, for the long, for the long term, absolutely no. Cash, um, uh, we'll see its value eroded over time by inflation. Tactically at the moment, actually, we're very cautious and and concerned about markets and have been for some months now ahead of the events we've seen over the last week. And therefore, there is a case tactically to hold more cash uh, or more absolute return funds because we think 2016 is going to be potentially quite a challenging year for many markets. And, you know, we're underweight both equities and bonds within our own managed portfolios. Okay, so this would be just a short-term park though until um, the uh, funny period hopefully uh, moves on. Correct, that would very much yeah. be a tactical view yeah. um, uh, uh, and be ready though to start drip-feeding money back into the market if we start to see value return. I just think it's important to remember that um, there's been huge amounts of stimulus since the financial crisis. Uh, that has inflated asset prices but we're moving into new territory now. We've already seen the first interest rate rise from the US Federal Reserve Bank. Equally, we could see China, Japan and Europe doing more QE and more stimulus. And so we're at a point, I think, where there's going to be quite a big difference and divergence in the policies of central banks around the globe. And, you know, unwinding uh, some of the liquidity trapped in the system could be could lead to quite volatile times. Yeah. Now, if you are going to park your cash uh, for the short term, um, where could you put it? I mean, bank accounts aren't 
they don't pay much, uh, you know, they don't pay much interest. And um, what would you be suggesting? I would to? say go go find a good savings account because this is very mm. much a kind of tactical view of there's too much risk out there rather than there are attractive returns to be had by holding cash. Um, clearly, there aren't because rates are very low. Um, they may start to rise in the UK um, within mm. the next 12 months. No one really knows at this point whether it'll be the back end of this year or possibly early into 2017. A lot of that really depends on the outlook for inflation. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, another notable thing about this portfolio is the number of holdings. Um, I had to count the reader's got nearly 40 funds. And I say funds, not individual shares. What number of holdings is suitable for funds portfolio? Because I'm thinking like 40 is like way too much, right? I, I agree. Uh, I think um, you know, this is actually quite a common thing we see for people who like to manage their own portfolios. Is actually in the main, most of the individual holdings are perfectly good funds or investment trusts in this case in their own right and that's not really the problem area it's that there's too much diversification and I think you know bear in mind each one of these funds or investment trusts may have anywhere between 30 and 200 holdings so uh, that's a lot of uh, um, diversification and actually it just becomes I think potentially unmanageable keeping a really thorough eye on all of those holdings. Now, there isn't a um, magic answer to this, but I would say if you look at a professional discretionary investment manager or a fund of fund manager, when we manage these portfolios for clients or we manage a fund of funds, we'll probably have no more than 20 individual uh, uh, funds within a portfolio. And I think that, to me, feels about the right number at the top end. And a really good discipline comes with that. So I think the trouble is for, for, for many DIY investors, it gets to the time of year when they're thinking about perhaps funding an ISA or putting some money in a pension. They're you know reading their IC and they're seeing some interesting fund ideas or tips or whatever looks attractive at the moment. And there becomes a natural tendency to add yet another holding. And the problem is over time, you don't end up with a portfolio that's working together in an overall strategy. You end up with a, a museum of yesterday's yeah. best ideas. And so a really good discipline is if you say 20 is the number, when you see a new idea, it forces you to look at all those holdings you've got and say, which one of these should come, come out of the portfolio? Do I believe the new idea is better than something that's already in there? And if the answer is no, then actually you should be topping up some of your existing holdings. And as you're topping up your existing holdings, that should really be based on you know, which parts of the market look attractive at the moment, but also where am I underweight? Where you know, do I need a bit more property or do I need more Japanese equities, for example? And mm -hmm. that's where I'll focus for this year's ISA allowance or pension allowance. And in fact, we're, we're dealing with that, aren't we, in, in next week's issue. So we'll touch on that a bit more about the ways that you might want to look at your portfolio and judge whether it's got the right kind yeah. of balance and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that'll be coming up in um, issue of the uh, 15th of January. So, uh, yeah, but some really useful points there. So uh, thank you, Jason. Now, uh, the first few days of equity trading in 2016 have kicked off with a lot of volatility in markets triggered by a plunge in China. So Kate's been looking at what's going on and what it means for investors. Kate, first of all, why did Chinese markets tank? Uh, yeah, things were very dramatic in China on the first few days of trading. And 
indices, all of the domestic indices basically plummeted, which has spread to kind of contagion throughout the rest of the world. Um, but there were a few factors, the main ones being that the government released some very weak or weaker than hoped for um, manufacturing data, which kind of spooked everyone because there's this ongoing fear that Chinese growth is slowing. And what does that mean for the rest of the world? Um, and also there was a, a ban on stock sales by larger investors, which had been put in and the last Chinese crash was due to end. And the Chinese domestic market is made up predominantly of retail investors. So all of these retail investors were suddenly piling out um, before the kind of large institutional investors. So that sent all of these markets down. And the different thing about this crash was um, for the first time we had these circuit breakers, uh, which are designed to limit volatility by halting trading when the market falls by more than 5% for 15 minutes. And then for the whole day, if the market falls by more than 7%. Um, and that was uh, quite dramatic as well, because this this kind of came in. And then when the market fell by five, everyone started panicking, it was going to fall by seven. So all piled out. And um, so we had a lot of stock suspensions. Um, at the beginning of the week, um, in the middle of the week, kind of things picked up slightly, but then tanked again on Thursday when um, the government allowed the yuan to fall quite dramatically, which surprised investors. People are very worried about what's happening with the currency. So again, we had a big plummet um, and the government's kind of been repeatedly stepping in, trying to prop up markets um, which actually seems to be kind of spooking people even more since last year people have been a bit worried about this kind of vaguely erratic uh, policy towards markets and whether it's working and right now we've just got markets kind of um, unbelievably volatile up and down every day. Okay now I think what's probably more relevant for uh, UK investors what's happening to China and Asia funds? Well, I mean, it's it's interesting. And for UK investors, that they do need to consider that there's a difference actually between what you read about, which is mainly the domestic markets, the Shanghai and Shenzhen composites and CSI 300, which are the onshore markets made up of A shares. And we can't really access those um, to much extent in the UK because fund managers mainly buy H shares, which are offshore shares, um, Hong Kong listed, um, and ADRs, which are foreign listed Chinese companies. American depository receipts. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, so those are less affected than the A share market, which is this market made up of Chinese retail investors. But that's not to say that they're not affected. So funds have obviously been hit. Um, and I mean, I had a look at the share prices of, of some of trusts and ETFs at the beginning of the week, and they were all down kind of similar levels. Well, the ETFs, obviously, similar levels to the market. And the trusts were down maybe about half uh, in the first couple of days. So they've made back some of those losses, but they will obviously feel the pain of this. Certainly in the short term. Certainly yeah. in the short term. I mean, you know, obviously you can't judge uh, a fund on, on just a week. Mm. Especially not a, a, an Asian fund, presumably. No. Uh, investors there should be holding for 5, 10, 15, yeah. 20 years even. But the important term. thing to know is that the interesting thing is when I had a look at funds with more than 30% invested in China, mm. some of the worst affected have been, you know, emerging markets funds, um, Asia funds. It's not just, uh, you know, China funds that are affected here. Some of the worst hit are, are broader funds. So you might be affected more than you think, even if you think you don't have many holdings in direct China funds.
Okay. Now, what what are, with the active funds? You know, what the fund managers doing? Are they are they worried? Are they panicking? Well, I mean, unsurprisingly, they... I guess China fund managers are saying that this is an opportunity, not a disastrous <laughs> um, series of events. But I mean, the managers I spoke to were saying, look, you know, we're not interested in these kind of very fashionable high tech stocks, which uh, Chinese retail investors are kind of uh, betting on. We like blue chip companies which have good you know revenue generation prospects and actually they're saying look these cheap these stocks are looking really cheap and we're buying more um and a couple pointed out some adrs which are american listed stocks so um things like alibaba and baidu which um fell really dramatically last august for example in the last crash and then got really cheap and some managers bought back in and then they you know soared after that so managers are saying this is a good time to buy bargain basement. Exactly. <laughs> okay, but whether whether that's how <laughs> yeah. George Soros isn't though, is he? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Jason, what do you think this means for you know UK investors, and what do you think UK investors should be doing with their China and Asia funds? Sure. I mean, as Kate said, there, there are certainly some technical factors here, but I think what our concern with this is contagion into other developed markets. It's important to remember that, you know, that the, these Chinese local exchanges, as Kate said, are not um, that accessible directly to uh, UK retail investors. But I think there is a bigger concern that's been building over some time about the pace of Chinese, uh, China's slowdown, economic slowdown and whether or not it's heading for a hard landing. And I think many investors have underestimated that risk. Uh, you know, China has been through a depth fueled um, uh, economic expansion. Um, it's uh, uh, heavily um, invested in infrastructure. It's changing its model, that is, decreasing demand for, for industrial commodities in particular. And China really uh, has been the engine of world growth since the financial crisis, but fueled by uh, this mirage of debt. And I think there's a real worry that um, China's uh, capital reserves are fast being depleted, that its manipulation of its economy is becoming very apparent. So I think, you know, many people thought, well, China, it, it's, it's communist, but it's really capitalist economically. Well, actually, it's abundantly clear it is not a free market capitalist economy. It is uh, the state keeps stepping in and manipulating its stock markets, manipulating its property markets. It's propped up failing businesses. Um, through dragooning local authorities to um, issue more debt. And uh, that has meant that, that China, the Chinese economy has excess capacity that um, uh, could potentially be, flood the globe. And I think there's a, the biggest worry that many investors have is if we see further marked devaluation of China's currency, will that export a tidal wave of deflation around the globe, dumping cheap Chinese exports around the globe to try and kickstart its um, economy. That would have very alarming consequences right across the globe and would probably result in uh, responses from other central banks. We already mentioned earlier the Eurozone could well do more QE. Japan could well do more, more QE. And I think these sort of currency wars that could stem from China allowing the yuan to devalue more would be potentially very dangerous. Okay. I mean, if um, UK investors have got China and Asia funds in their portfolio, should they sit on them? Should they dump them? Should they buy more like the fund managers are doing? It comes down to what's your time horizon. Now, look, a lot of asset markets have been severely inflated since the global financial crisis, especially the US equity market in our view, but 
UK shares do not look that cheap. The one thing you can say is on many metrics, emerging markets and Asia's look cheap. But many people were saying that a year ago and two years ago, um, and of course, uh, a market can look artificially cheap and prove a value trap if actually earnings expectations prove wrong because the situation worsens. So I think one needs to be a a little bit careful. It could be the case that uh, emerging markets bottom out during this year. I don't think we're there yet. And um, could, by the latter half of the year, turn out to have been an opportunity. But I would be very nervous about piling in aggressively at this point in time, as I think there could be a lot worse news to come. And therefore, anyone who wants to build a long-term position my view would be that they should gradually drip some meat, drip feed some money across the year over a period of months, um, but be very careful from assuming just because a market's had a sell-off, it's therefore a buy, um, because I think the earnings could come under further pressure in some of these markets. Okay. Now, on a slightly more positive note, um, in this week's issue, we've set out some suggestions for good areas and funds to put your money into in 2016. And two of the areas we picked out were Japan and Europe. Okay, you did the research into these areas. Why are Japan and Europe a good bet for investors to invest in in 2016? Um, yeah, well, I think notably it's been harder to choose any areas which which you can feel very comfortable about. Um, and one way to do that at the moment is is to look for the kind of regions where you've got some kind of central banking stimulus or something to you know kind of boost markets in that sense. And Japan and Europe, you've also got quite a good narrative of recovery and reform. So in Japan ever since the election of um, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. We've had this big reform package, which is ongoing. There's three arrows. So the first, all about devaluation and fiscal stimulus. And now he's kind of turning his attention to corporate governance. So there's quite a strong kind of narrative there, which quite a lot of people have faith in. And it does look like that's starting to work. And it's also been cheaper since the last kind of China crash affected Asian equities. So better value for getting in and, you know, that potential of of a market kind of propped up by some central banking stimulus. Similar idea in Europe. You've obviously got this ongoing recovery. And even if that does stall, which arguably it could, I've got more QE heading into Europe, which will kind of be a boost for European equities. Okay, Jason, what's your take on Europe and Japan as uh, destinations for equity investors? Well, actually, it's all, all, almost identical view to, to the one uh, that Kate's just talked through for, for the same reasons. I think the, Europe is our relatively favoured equity market. As I mentioned, we are quite cautious overall. But uh, we would be leaning away from those markets that are likely to tighten monetary policy, definitely the, the US and to some extent the UK. Um, and leaning towards those markets that still have very accommodative policies in place. So Eurozone definitely, um, but also I think Japan would would also be a market um, worth considering if you don't have meaningful exposure there at the moment. Okay, now um, we obviously flagged it as our tips for 2016, but we didn't mean that people should only invest in them for 12 months, e.g. in 2016, because equity is a long-term investment. So Jason, for investors... um, topping up or initially putting their money into Europe and Japan, how many years are, you know, a suitable time length for you to potentially benefit from investing in those regions? I think it makes sensible when you're buying any equity fund to take a view of at least five years. Um, but, you know, uh, um, we, th- we think that these markets should deliver 
positive returns, you know, on on a kind of eighteen month month um, view. But uh, I think five years is the right timeline. Minimum, of course. Minimum. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, there's a lot of positive things um, about Europe and Japan, but Jason, is there anything that um, you worried about? Because obviously, nothing's risk free, right? Uh, Nothing's risk free, and I think just the the bigger worry at the moment is rising sort of risk aversion. And I think, you know, whether or not you know emerging markets happen to look cheap and it's the right time to get back in, or Europe or Japan look relatively more attractive than other markets. At the end of the day, is if we get pandemonium and investors start pulling out of equities across the board is you know in that situation is all sorts of markets will get in the short term caught in the crossfire um so you know our view is that the eurozone will end up having to do more qe japan quite possibly so as well because both of those central banks are nowhere near the inflation targets that they've set really because commodity prices have been so weak globally largely because of um, the slowdown in China, but also very low oil prices, that doesn't look set to change anytime soon. So um, it's quite possible they will have to step further on the accelerator. Okay. Now, if you do have the um, right risk appetite and time horizon to invest in Europe and Japan, are there any particular funds that um, sure. you know, are good for getting exposure to the region? Sure. Well, you know, these are actually uh, are both a couple of markets where there are some, uh, there's actually quite a bit of choice of very good funds. Ones I would perhaps suggest for, for investing in Europe as a sort of core fund, the Threadneedle uh, European Select Fund is one that we've long supported. It tends to buy quality growth companies. Quite a lot of sort of big brand type uh, companies are held in that portfolio. But something that's much more of a a sort of domestic Europe play, go perhaps for a smaller mid-cap fund. So Bearing Europe Select is one to consider. And then I I would say for a fund that... um, pursues a more sort of high conviction approach, uh, Henderson European focus. For Japan, um, uh, you know, I know uh, IC readers tend to be fans of investment trusts. One quite new trust that recently came to the market that looks very interesting is the CC Japan Growth and Income Trust. Uh, this is run, sorry, CC Japan Income and Growth Trust. This is managed by a, um, a specialist Asian boutique called Coupland Cardiff, who have a fantastic track record on funds that aren't really available to retail investors. But they've launched this investment trust, um, which is the first that has an, an income element to the story. And uh, one of the really interesting things about Japan is historically, um, Japanese companies have tended to hoard huge amounts of cash on their balance sheets, and not been that shareholder friendly. But as Kate mentioned, one of the reforms that uh, is happening in Japan at the moment is improved corporate governance. And we're definitely seeing a trend of Japanese companies doing more share buybacks, increasing dividends, They're also being pressured uh, to do that by the Japanese government pension scheme, which um, has had its uh, ability to invest in uh, equities substantially increased and will want to see dividends uh, uh, in support of that investment. So rising dividends in Japan from a very low base, I think is going to be a really interesting theme. And here is an investment trust that specifically uh, is pursuing those types of companies. So that's one I would look at. Also, you know, another fund worth considering um, would be Manjilji Japan Core Alpha Fund. That focuses on, you know, larger companies that, are, that the manager believes are undervalued. That's been 
relatively a weaker part of the Japanese market of late, but I think there could be some opportunities there. Okay, some interesting suggestions there. And that's all we've got time for this week, so it just remains to thank Jason Hollands, Managing Director at Tilney Best Invest, and Kate Bealey. You can read more on asset allocation and retirement, Chinese equity markets and good investment areas for 2016 and beyond in this week's Investors Chronicle and on the website. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend.